Wise, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. I am so grateful you're here. If you've already subscribed to my YouTube channel, thank you so much. And if you haven't done that, I know you've meant to, so please go ahead and do that now. Today's show is going to be about the effects of early childhood trauma on language development. Now, I've been interested in this topic for a long time, and I've been thinking about children's mental health and the mental health of the families we serve as a primary consideration when we're designing initial treatment plans for our youngest little clients. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you're on my daily email list, you've gotten a couple of emails about that maybe about a month ago. And so it's certainly a topic that stuck with me, but I want to share it in a more formal way today. Now, if you heard me mention that daily email and you're not on my list, I would love for you to be able to do that. So please just look for the link below this post and you can find out information about signing up. And if you want to get a written summary of today's show, you can do that there as well. You'll need to purchase the CE credit package for only $5, and you can uh, look at that, look at the link for that in the post below as well if you're a therapist and need that continuing education credit. All right, so when we're talking about early childhood trauma, we are really talking about stress and the effects of stress and how we respond to that stress and then what happens if that stress continues to be a long-term or an ongoing event. Now, this information is all from developing child from harvard.edu if you want to take a look at this uh, at the sourcing for this kinds of information but let's just talk about stress for a minute there are three kinds of stress and as an adult you can certainly relate to this too but I think that we don't think about stress for children so that's what I want us to do first we're going to personalize it on an adult level and then we're going to talk about the effects on children so let's just think about the stress in your own life there are three kinds positive tolerable and toxic so what is positive stress and you may not think about stress as being positive but when we uh, talk through these examples and your own body's responses you'll start to really really recognize that because since I've read this research I've thought oh this is positive stress oh this is tolerable stress and I hate having toxic stress in my life but again I hope that we can walk through these examples and you can really have some important takeaways from this so let's look at positive stress what happens when you have positive stress well first of all this response is very very normal and it's also normal for children and it's part of a healthy development for a child to be able to handle these kinds of positive stressors now physiologically what happens to us when we have positive stress it's the same kind of thing that we think about which we might think about more like negative stress but we'll get an increase in our heart rate and mild elevation in our hormone levels and by that I'm talking about uh, cortisol that that uh, stress hormone that we release in our bodies. So what are kinds of the kinds of things that are examples of positive stress? Well, for an adult, it might be a job promotion that you've worked for. You're excited about it, but there's a certain level of stress in getting that new position and in meeting your new job requirements. Or it might be going on vacation. You're excited. You want to go, but you have the packing, you have the travel, you have all the things kind of associated with that. So you can now kind of think about, you know, positive stress is something that I want to do, but there are some things that cause me some anxiety or some concerns as I'm getting ready for that event. Let's think about it for a child, a very young child. It might be uh, being with a new caregiver, going to a new daycare or a new preschool. It might even be something like jumping in a swimming pool or getting a shot at the doctors. These are things that, again, have positive outcomes, things we have to or need to or want to do, but it still kind of causes us stress. But again, there's 
short amounts, our body responds, we get that little hormone level kicked up, our heart rate increases, but we meet the challenge, we go through the event, and we're fine. Now let's talk about the next kind of stress, which is tolerable stress. Now we're still not kind of thinking about this in a negative way because of what the outcome is. So let's look at this definition. What is tolerable stress? Well, it activates the body uh, with our alert systems to a greater degree than positive stress. So again, it might be a little bit more up on your, your negative scale if you're thinking about uh, that, but it could also be a result of a more severe or longer lasting difficulty. Now, again, this might range from just having a fight with somebody that you love all the way to loss of a loved one or a natural disaster or a frightening injury, something like a car wreck. Now, in case you're hearing these things and you're thinking, gosh, that, that doesn't sound like tolerable stress. What's the difference here? Well, it would be time. If that activation of that stressor in your life is time limited, and if it's buffered by the protective risk factors, or the, I'm sorry, the protective factors that you have around you, you're going to do better with that if you have the support of loved ones. Children are the same way. If they have uh, people who are helping them adapt, if the event doesn't last too long, if we get on the other side of that event, we recover, that is tolerable stress. And yes, that is part of, of our whole existence from childhood, from infancy through adulthood. So that's part of life too. If we don't have those protective factors in place, what happens? Our brain and other organs in our body do suffer from that long-term event in which now it kind of converts over into a toxic stress response. So what is this? This is when an adult or a child experiences strong, frequent, or prolonged adversity. So you don't really move past it. You're kind of stuck there for a while. And so again, we're going to talk about what some of these things might be for a child. It might be being in a really abusive home or an abusive situation without adequate adult support. So let's look at what, we're going to talk about some specific stressors or specific traumas in a minute. But let's talk about right now what happens to our stress response systems. Remember what happened with the positive stress. It was just a little bit of our body's response and then we recovered. And with tolerable stress, it lasted a little bit longer. We needed other people and some external outside forces to kind of come in and help us regulate that. Now we're here at this uh, prolonged stress, which again, it keeps going. So it, dis with children, here's what we're going to talk about today. It disrupts the development of their brain architecture. So what does that mean? Their brains don't develop as we expect them to because of this level of toxic stress that they continue to experience without the benefit of those protective factors. And it can also, again, as we talked about, affect other organ systems in their body. It increases the risk for stress-related disease as children get older, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, kind of the effects of that. And there's also a risk of cognitive impairment well into the adult years. So this is something that we as childhood professionals and parents of children who have experienced uh, adverse uh, circumstances in their lives, these are the kinds of things that we really, really need to focus on. So what we're going to do now is really talk about and personalize this with uh, taking a quiz known or what everybody ha that uh, has uh, come to refer to this in the professional literature as ACEs. So adverse childhood experiences. And we're going to look at a scale now developed by uh, Kaiser out of San Francisco. And it's just been used by all kinds of research 
researchers and educators and uh, anyone who's going to study childhood development. So this is kind of the, the standard with what we're looking at with stressors now. And again, to be predictive for a child's long-term outcome here. So let's personalize it. Like we said, we're just going to take the quiz ourselves. So if you're listening, driving, or if you are watching on YouTube now, just kind of, you know, use your 10 fingers here to keep up with your own score as you go. So I'm going to read this to you now. So think about yourself. Did a parent or other adult in the ha your household, household often swear at you, insult you, put you down, or humiliate you? Did they talk or act in a way that made you afraid that you might be physically hurt? If that's true, give yourself a one. Number two, did a parent or other adult in your home often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you? Did they ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured? If that's another yes, you have another one there. So keep your tally. Number three, did an adult or a person at least five years older than you ever touch you or fondle you or have you touched their body in a sexual way? And so again, the question goes on to be a little more explicit. I'm not going to continue with those really specific questions, but if there's a history there of inappropriate sexual con contact when you were a child with someone at least five years older than you, uh, give yourself another point for that. Number four, did you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought that you were important or special? Did you feel that your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other? If that's another yes, give yourself another point. Number five, did you often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, or had no one to protect you? Were your parents too high or too drunk to take care of you or take you to the doctor when you needed to go? If yes, enter another point. All right, number six, were your parents ever separated or divorced? Enter another point. Number seven, was your mother or stepmother or the woman that you viewed as your primary caregiver often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her? Was she sometimes or often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard? Was she ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or knife? If that's a yes, give yourself another point. Number eight, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or an alcoholic or uh, someone else in your household used street drugs? If yes, give yourself another point. Number nine, was a household member depressed or mentally ill or did a household member attempt suicide? That's number nine. If yes, give yourself a point. And then for the last question, number 10, did a household member go to prison? So if yes, uh, again, you get another point. So now add up your yes answers, and that is your ACEs score. And again, this is one point for any kind of significant trauma that you experienced as a child. So uh, researchers, like we were talking about before, have found a big link between childhood trauma and chronic disease when you're an adult. So again, this was a way for them to score this person's risk by looking at the specific traumas. And uh, this, is, again, is based on chronic life changing stress or that toxic stress level that we talked about before. The higher your ACE score, the higher your risk of health and social problems. And of course, there could be some other kinds of trauma too. We didn't list every kind 
of negative thing that could have happened to a child that could have produced that level of significant stress. And certainly you can probably think of some other situations. These were just the most, uh, the 10 most common that they identified in the original participants of this study. So here's what it is. Think about your own score. Most adults have a score of one. There's usually at least one. Anytime that you're looking at this, at you know, kind of where the, the scores fall, if you're looking at a uh, population of people. But here's what happens. When you get an ACE score of four or more, things get super serious about your health. The likelihood of chronic disease, the numbers, let me give you one example here. Pulmonary lung disease increases by 390%. That's because children who've had adverse uh, childhood experiences are more likely to engage in risky behaviors, which would place them, like smoking, like drinking, like using drugs, and it places them, again, in the in just a much higher risk factor for the things like chronic pulmonary lung disease, hepatitis, depression, attempted suicide. And so, again, these are... Uh, super super important to kind of look at this and get um, get just just becoming much more aware of this when we're looking at children and the things they've been through the most important thing to remember as we look at these ACE guidelines though is that it's just a guideline a guideline and so we have to there are going to be some other quotes that I share later that even if you're thinking about this and thinking about this for specific uh, uh, specifically for a child it does not mean this child is doomed <laughs> and I want to just kind of get that out there before we even get to the specifics with that uh, because again people handle things differently and as we move through this course you'll uh, you'll certainly hear about that so let's look at these 10 areas more closely and again uh, we're doing this not only to look at you to maybe explain some things that have happened to you and as we're going to talk about later uh, children who uh, lots of times experience adverse childhood events have parents who have lived through those things and have grandparents and so there's some generational things here as well uh, so let's talk about these things and, and particularly uh, let's just look at these 10 areas more closely so these the first five that we looked at those first five questions that I asked you to deal with things that happen to a child personally so things like physical abuse and again I don't have to explain that you know what those kinds of things are anytime though that a child feels threatened or is hurt physically uh, that physical abuse is a big 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 uh, factor and certainly is a traumatic uh, traumatic or toxic stress uh, uh, situation in that child's life so physical abuse but it goes beyond that verbal abuse so we talked about the insults or made you feel physically threatened that's certainly verbal abuse sexual abuse and then we have the two kinds of neglect here physical neglect that would be not taking care of a child's uh, personal needs feeding them clothing them getting them medical help when they needed that and then certainly emotional neglect not feeling that they have anyone that they can count on or anyone they can depend on no one who's really looking out for their mental health or their emotional well-being. So those were the five factors that happen to a child individually. The next set are family factors. And if you'll think back to those 
questions. It had to deal with a parent who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, a mother who's a victim of domestic violence. Again, it could be just whoever the primary maternal figure is there. If a child lives with his grandmother and that is an ongoing problem with his grandmother, you know, that would certainly count. A family member who's been sent to jail or prison, that's very, very disruptive in a family's life. A family member diagnosed with a mental illness, and again, that could even be a brother or a sister happening with a young child, and then separation, divorce, or any kind of abandonment from parents when that happens uh, in a child's life and that parent is had been there and is suddenly removed, that can be very, very traumatic for a child. And again, we did our own ACEs score personally when we walked through this, but we need to think about this as SLPs and other kinds of early childhood professionals about the ACEs score for the kids that we're serving. Is this child undergoing a toxic level of stress? Think about our kids who we serve who are in foster care. Anytime a child is in foster care, he or she has an ACEs score. And so let's think about this. You know, a toddler who's been neglected physically enough to be removed from his home, let's say there's some physical abuse, he has an alcoholic parent and has a mother who's been beaten up. That child, maybe before he's even two years old, before he lands on anyone's doorstep professionally to evaluate him or look at him, he's he has an ACEs score of four. And unfortunately, that's not a scenario I made up. And if you will think about that, I bet you've served uh, children like that who've been on your caseload too. And so we have to consider all of the things that are happening to the child, not just this language delay, not just whatever reason they've been referred to us for. How, how is this child coming to us? What, what, what is this cumulative effect here? And we were just talking about those conventional ACEs, those 10 adverse events or experiences that I mentioned. We didn't consider anything like homelessness or food insecurity. And now they're trying to look at expanded ACEs like racial discrimination, violence in the community, bullying, all those kinds of things. Uh, so theoretically, a child could have a score of greater than 10, but I think all of those things, again, just, just go on to help us really, really hunker down and focus on instead of when we're evaluating a child, instead of looking at, you know, what's wrong with you, <laughs> why is all this going wrong with you, our better question and our more empathetic question would be, what has happened to you? And so that's the reality for so many of our little friends that we're serving in early intervention programs or uh, even in, in a school system setting. They've got quite an ACE score by the time we see them, whether it's at two or three or at five. And might I also add, like we mentioned before, their parents have lived through that too. And so we have to really, really start to think about that. And as when I first started listening to this information, I mean, it really made me think, back to children that I've served in the past and really considering, gosh, could I have done more to help that family? What are, would I have, knowing the things that I know now, how would I have approached treatment with that family? Would I have done some things differently from the get-go? And the answer is yes. And so we're going to talk about what those things are kind of at the end of the show, but right now we're still going to focus on on these effects because I want you to, again, be able to consider the totality of what might be happening to a child that you're serving. Now, just in case you are thinking these ACEs are just limited 
to families who have lower socioeconomic status. That is simply not true. With the original uh, participants in this study, they were, uh, they were pulled from 17,000 mostly white, mostly middle and upper class college educated uh, employees of Kaiser in San Diego. So again, these were people with health insurance and with a regular salary and not worried about the uh, other contributing factors that we talked about with homelessness and food insecurity and all those things, they still had experienced some of these uh, really traumatic events as children. And so we have to keep that in mind too and not to think about it just being a lower socioeconomic thing. But here's the truth. <laughs> kids who live in poverty are likely to have more ACEs than kids who don't. And just so you're wondering, one in six adults that we talked about before had that score of, of four for an ACEs score, which means uh, that they were more likely, again, to have those chronic health problems and some other things that we're going to talk about. Uh, remember that we said that adult, nearly every adult has at least one ACE, but it's that cumulative effect. It's when they keep piling on top of each other or dosing, as we see sometimes in the literature. Again, it's, it's just when something, uh, it, it it would be that the trauma continues to be administered. There's another dose of trauma, another dose of trauma, another dose of trauma. And so that certainly is something that we need to consider. Uh, does it level the playing field for children who, again, are in higher socioeconomic uh, status situations? No, but we, we and, or does it matter with, uh, if you're looking at our kids who are in those lower uh, SES ranges? Does it matter? You know, does it level the playing field that everybody has some kind of adverse childhood event? Actually, no. And we can't think about it like that as well. And so we have to uh, be sure that we're continually thinking again about that dosing or that cumulative effect. So what happens when a child experiences that, that toxic level of stress continually? Especially if it's triggered by multiple sources, it will have that cumulative toll on their physical and mental health uh, for a lifetime. So here here are some consequences of ACEs, and again, these would be uh, particularly when uh, your score is getting in that four or higher range. Chronic health problems, which we've talked about a lot already, mental health problems, depression, anxiety, those are the chief issues that we see there related to mental health. We already talked about the risky behaviors. The reason that they're more likely to have some of those health problems is because they don't have the natural stops that uh, might occur in families who weren't having these uh, kinds of issues. So again, engaging in smoking, drinking, and illicit drugs, and certainly the socioeconomic challenges, lack of education, unemployment, lack of health care will uh, take a toll pretty quickly. So we've spent a lot of time talking about ACEs and its, their effect when a child gets to be an adult. Now let's shift to the problems that children have still during childhood. And again, I want you to specifically think about this for the toddlers or preschoolers or early elementary age uh, children who are on your caseload. And remember that dosing relationship too that we just talked about when that uh, trauma is continuing when they're not out of that abusive situation, when they're continuing to live uh, with uh, in a family where someone's mental health issues are really, really, really not being treated and not being addressed. It does have that uh, that uh, you know cumulative effect, like we've talked about. We also want to talk about when that happens. The higher your ACEs score, the lower your developmental trajectory. 
Now that just breaks my heart. <laughs> when we think about an 18-month-old or a two-year-old or a three-year-old who's lived through some of those things, and we know that their developmental trajectory is not going to be what it were, uh, was, or what it would be had those things not happened. And so let me give you some uh, pretty sobering statistics here. Adults with four or more ACEs are 32.6 times more likely to be diagnosed with learning and behavioral problems. And researchers have also found, uh, again, a correlation with that even in childhood. So let's talk about the brain architecture changes that we see Again, and uh, Harvard has just done a really good job. I gave you that link before. It's developingchild.harvard.edu uh, is how you can search that. And so these are the things that, again, we, we look at long-term effects for an adult, but we can see, as we're going to uh, talk about uh, coming up, how these uh, factors start to play uh, even in a child's early childhood language development. So we see the decreases in language skills. <clears throat> we see decreases in executive functioning and what it, are executive functioning skills. These are really your cognitive skills, how you remember, how you plan, how you organize, those kinds of things. Those are the things that we see in adults who've had four or more ACEs. So we already, number one, we already talked about their suppressed immune system, so they're more likely to have chronic illnesses. Number two, and this where, is where we start to really talk about these brain uh, structure differences. Now, as I go through these, if you're a parent, you're thinking, oh, that neurology, I don't, I don't uh, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to explain the language connection as we go through these, but let me just read the, the list at first. So increased amygdala size. So what's your amygdala? It's your part of your brain. It controls your fight, flight, or freeze response. So we're going to talk about why that happens with children who have experienced a lot of trauma. The next one, two, three, four structural changes talk about reduction in size. So this is going to be the hippocampus size is reduced. Hippocampus has to do with your memory, how well you store uh, information that you've learned. The next one is your orbital frontal cortex. This controls your emotional understanding and regulation. So how well you're able to get to and maintain peace and understanding that uh, with, with, within your own, uh, your own mind there and in addition to uh, how you interact with the, the other people that are around you. The next structure that changes is your corpus callosum, and this is the structure that uh, allows the left side of your brain and your right side of your brain to communicate. There's a reduced volume in that. And then the next one is the reduced volume of your cerebellum. And you, if you'll remember, your cerebellum really has to do with motor function, but it also has some important uh, uh, functions of being able to, again, communicate information to other parts of your brain. So let's run through what happens when we have these structural changes because a child is exposed to trauma or toxic stress. So we talked about the amygdala, and again, we said that the amygdala increases in size. So what happens when a part of your brain gets bigger? Why does it get, big, get bigger? Because it's been over-recruited. <laughs> because the child has had to rely on this part of his brain a lot, a lot more than expected. And again, why? It's anytime he's placed 
placed in a dangerous situation. And your amygdala is what tells you again or what triggers that fight, flight, or freeze response. So does a child feel like he's going to fight? Does he feel aggressive? Does he feel like he's got to stand up and be powerful and do something back to uh, whatever's causing him that initial kind of stress or pain? So we see that in a lot with our little guys who are so aggressive and who are so impulsive you know we see that fight or that flight piece where they've just got to get out of there they just got to escape and so we'll see that or we'll see the kids who feel like they need to escape but they can't even physically they almost seem paralyzed those are the kids who freeze and think about your own responses uh, and, and it might be that a different kind of trauma or a different kind of danger would trigger a different kind of response and that's completely normal too but lots of us including children have kind of the, their normal go-to aggressive kids and aggressive adults you know fight is kind of their number one response and so we look we look at that when we're seeing a lot of that a lot of times with children when we look at aggression or we look at impulsivity, or we look at just that frozen, non-responsive child, we don't always think about those as physiological responses to what they have perceived. And, and probably if you're in that situation too, what you perceive for them as a stressor or a, again, something that's, that's putting them in what they feel to be a dangerous situation. And certainly all the things that we went through, those are bona fide dangerous situations. But again, we don't always, uh, equate that with a child. Sometimes we really are just looking at that behavioral piece without really considering what's going on. And so we talked about with the amygdala, it's just been used so much. And I like the term over-recruited. Children have been in that position of feeling unsafe so much that that part of their brain actually grows because they're going to it. Uh, that That's kind of their go-to thing. That's what they have to do more than anything is is feel like I'm, in, I'm not safe here. I've, I've got, I've, I've got to respond in some way and again that's a, a protective mechanism that it's been built into a child it's intrinsic and so children really have very little control over that that's just what's happening and so why does the amygdala get bigger because the brain's energy is focused on survival and again get we all want to get to that place even when we're children where we feel safe and we don't feel threatened anymore and when a child does this a lot his other areas of his brain do not develop as they should the amygdala kind of runs amok and takes over and even takes over space from other other uh, structural parts of the brain like we already talked about. So we get a kid who's hypervigilant. He's, he, all, he seems kind of worried. He seems kind of uh, you know, on, on alert all the time, hyper aroused, really, really super scared or super aware of what's going on around him because, again, he's, he's, he's been trained. He's learned this is going to happen to me. And so that, that's why we might see that structural change there with the amygdala. All right, and so for some kids, again, this might be this might explain why their little systems are on go 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 all the time and I'm sure you've seen that with kids and and just thinking back with the kids that I've treated that have uh, been in the foster care system or there's been some kind of family disruption or some kind of even just a, a significant event like the the death of a parent they do look like gosh he can't even settle down enough to think straight or to learn and you were exactly right when you said that he can't and so we have to eliminate those stressors and reduce those stressors 
In addition, the other thing we can do is provide those protective factors, which we're going to talk about at the end of the show. So if you're sitting there now and you're thinking about a particular child that you're now serving, or if you're a parent and you're thinking, gosh, this is my kid. This is the life we've been living. This is, this is what's happened, again, not only to my, me, but to my child. Don't get depressed yet. <laughs> Don't get to the point where you feel like you just want to click off the video because there's no hope. There's a ton of hope, and we're going to keep reviewing that. But I just want you to understand, especially with this uh, fight, flight, or freeze, what, what could be happening. And let's not be so quick to rush to these behavioral changes where we're going to punish a child or where we're going to, again, do some reward system for things that he likely can't even control yet. There's some better ways to address that. And so we need to remember when kids, this is happening to kids, it's really the things that have happened to them have really limited some of their ability to catch up or to develop those higher level language skills and so that's certainly something that we as professionals need to keep in mind all right let's move on and talk about the rest of these structures and these were the structures that had the reduction in volume so these are the areas of the brain that were smaller because the amygdala has gotten larger because all that that child or teenager or kid as we're talking about young child toddler is having to how his brain is dealing with all these things that are happening in and around him and or to him so the hippocampus is the next structure and it's the part of your brain that helps with learning and memory and so it also helps the body regulate we talked about cortisol or that all-important hormone that's that gets released when we're under stress and so there's some interruption in the natural release of that uh, for individuals and so we have to uh, just again kind of consider that so we talked about the corpus callosum that's the next structure and how it shows decreased volume and remember what we said is that large white matter tract that connects your left hemisphere with your right hemisphere and this helps you synthesize incoming input for language and it coordinates the left and the right brain functions for language and so when we have any our brains are coordinated uh, to work together and so when the corpus callosum it, it becomes decreased again we're t specifically talking about trauma we don't have that uh, inter uh, connectivity or that ability for our brain to really function like it should and so again they're going to be uh, misfires for lack of a better word and so that certainly is going to have an impact on language the next one was the cerebellum which we talked about traditional things we think about it in terms of walking and in terms of being steady that motor coordination piece but there's also that set of pathways that connects the cerebellum to the prefrontal uh, contact, uh, cortex and remember what we said about that that's where we uh, regulate our emotions where we think about thinking where our, a lot of our just knee-jerk responses come from and so it's also the home of our uh, higher order cognitive functions like we said about controlling they're controlling what our reactions are and so we also talked about that that even though that uh, cerebellum that connection there to our frontal cortex there and it's that structure is reduced as well and so uh, controlling those emotions like anger and rage controlling frustration how many times have we seen our little guys who have no frustration tolerance the puzzle piece does not fit into the puzzle so what do they do they just throw the whole thing across the room or you know they just fall into a 
just a, a just a sobbing heap on the floor when they can't get the door to the barn open if you're playing with them during a therapy session. And so we've seen, you know, again, it can be a, a child who overreacts out of, out of, uh, uh, we look at it negatively like misbehavior like anger or aggression toward you or again sometimes we don't think about that a child who just uh, uh, really really falls apart really easily it might not even be a temper tantrum per se it might just be you know a 20-minute cry that you can't can't seem to get a hold of with a child and can't redirect them and so that that's a difference in that child's brain and so we need to recognize those so what happens as a result of those uh, architectural differences in a child's brain. So these are the kind of behavioral things that we can see. We've already talked about that low frustration tolerance. So what does that result in? It results in a kid who doesn't want to try. So we have task persistence difficulties. And again, we might think about seeing some of these with older kids. It might be that they're learning to write their names and it's so frustrating for them. And so they, they just, they don't want to practice. They'll do everything they can to kind of get away. They don't have task persistence. In a toddler, it might be, again, like like learning how to feed themselves with a spoon. The food is, they, they don't, it's hard for them to do for whatever reason. Or again, figuring out a toy. They don't realize, uh, let's say they're trying to do some rocket launchers and they don't realize that the, the little rocket has to be right on the stick to work. And then they have to not only push the rocket launcher with their foot to activate it, those little stomp rockets, they have to uh, give it the right pressure. They can't just tap. And so a kid with task persistence difficulties doesn't engage in the level of trial and error that he needs in order to really learn something. And so that that's a big one that I think we see with our little guys. Uh, who were in early intervention. Uh, the next one, difficulty with self-regulation. So, you know, when they have that that fresh, that thing that's caused them frustration, they, uh, again, have an overreaction to that. And that might be a child who uh, just wants to get out of there, who destroys the whole, all everything that you're playing with so that he can uh, uh, leave. He, he can't keep himself calm. It might be the kid, again, that we talked about who cries a lot because that's kind of their, uh, they, they can't ever get to that just right quiet calm peaceful place to learn and so we'll see some of that we certainly are going to see reduced engagement in school and I might say even for us as early intervention professionals reduced engagement in therapy <laughs> these are the kids that we can't get to just stay with us and to just be with us and to participate more than a few minutes we're always trying to they're always running away or like I said before shutting down or uh, being so aggressive that you feel like you can't get anything else done all your time is spent managing their behavior and so certainly that's going uh, that that's a part of that uh, structural change there and that's going to affect how successful you are with helping them whether it be they're trying to learn second grade math or they are uh, with you in an OT session <laughs> or trying to work on a fine motor uh, task so again we'll see that reduced engagement uh, we talked about the behaviors. They're often externalized behaviors that we perceive as negative. So defiance, a child who seems to refuse to do everything you ask him to do. Certainly that can be something we see. And we talked about, you know, why? Because the structures in his brain, they're uh, responsible for that more mature acting behavior. Just it's, it's just not available to him yet. Things like aggression or even older kids, things like cheating. 
where we see that, again, they've got these risky kinds of behaviors going on. We'll also see the opposite end of that. That would be kids who withdraw. And we talked about that freeze response with kids when they're in the fight, flight, or freeze kind of overstimulated amygdala phase. This might be a kid who is into perfectionism. And so if he can't do it just right the first time, he doesn't want anything to do with it. So he starts to kind of shut down on the things that he'll try. That's a difference. That's not a normal uh, a, a response from a child. Naturally, children are curious and they want to do other things. And their whole drive is that uh, exploration phase. And so we might not see that with a child. We might see a child, uh, even a toddler, who's pretty sedentary, who's pretty withdrawn, who's pretty aloof. And so certainly that's a change that that we can look for. Uh, we certainly, as children uh, get older on into high school and beyond high school, we could see that pattern of academic failure really, really catches up with them. And there certainly have been some studies that say because of these brain differences, children will also go on to uh, have difficulty in um, maybe even uh, more contact with the legal system. And so again, those risky behaviors kind of play out. So we've talked a lot about what happens when children are older and we've even kind of brought it down to these examples with school-age children. Now let's look at some social and emotional cha uh, challenges that we see even in our preschool population. So there's some studies that tell us some really interesting things about children in the three to five year range who already have a, an ACE score of two or more, all right? They are four times more likely to have emotional challenges that impact the learning. So again, it might not be just a language delay. It might be all of the other things that happen. They're easily distracted, so it's not easy for them to learn. Uh, even in this preschool range, all those pre-academic skills, they're going to have difficulty learning uh, the their sound letter correlations, difficulty learning even something more basic, colors, shapes, numbers. They can't calm down, so they miss academic time. They lose their temper, so they don't have as many little friends, even as they would have uh, again, compared to typically developing kids because of all these things, again, that look like social or emotional little uh, differences here, but they can have a big, big impact on their day-to-day -day life. So it's not just the language stuff that we're going to talk about. They have issues that, again, encompass all areas of that child's development. Uh, and let me give you an interesting statistic, not just about the preschool age kids, those same kids, when they age at 6 to 17, the, thing, the implications get a little bit more serious with social and emotional challenges. They're more likely to be bullied or to be the bully. <laughs> They're more likely to be excluded or to be the excluder. And so we look at that, just that opposite there, you know, the, the opposite of that, you know, are they the aggressor there or are they the victim? And so kids who have had those higher ACE scores are more likely to be either one in that situation. Uh, let's look at another interesting statistic about preschoolers, three to five-year-olds who have uh, an ACE score of two or more. 76% of kids who have been expelled from preschool have higher ACEs scores. And so I think back on my little guys whose parents would try to put them in daycare or try to put them in a preschool and mom would end up, I, sometimes I remember one family by the time that I saw those children, 
uh, and I saw two two little brothers, you know, one, and then saw the next one when he um, was identified, you know, when he was a little bit older. But they had been in multiple daycare placements because they had a lot of issues. They had a lot of uh, difficulty. Again, we talked about self-regulation and with managing those peer relationships. Uh, and and they were difficult for teachers uh, to handle when you have children who were biting and, again, causing disruptions in classrooms. Uh, they asked them to move on to another facility. And so it was really interesting to me, 76% of kids who were preschooled, uh, who were expelled from preschool, had uh, those kinds of issues. All right. So uh, we talked about this before, that kind of lower socioeconomic status versus higher socioeconomic status. Poverty alone has been shown to impact all aspects of speech and language development. And I'm sure as an SLP or another uh, early intervention professional, you certainly know that already, but I just wanted to make sure that we are thinking about that. There's a direct connection uh, between higher chronic stress and for low-income families, and again, we've just talked about those uh, environmental things with feeding a family, clothing a family, housing a family, those kinds of things. And often we talked about there's a generational impact. And so 26% of children uh, with speech and language disorders live in poor or low-income households. So there's a reciprocal relationship here, too, between kids who have experienced the trauma and disabilities. Now, I've uh, heard a wonderful presentation by Carol Westby on this and she talked about this a lot. Children with disabilities experience more abuse and neglect and children who experience abuse and neglect are more often to have disabilities. And so think about that, especially as we're trying to really think about the behavioral kinds of things. You know, what am I gonna do for this kid? I'm gonna sit on him and he's gonna listen to me and I'm just gonna put this reward system in and I gotta get control of his behavior and da 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 da. And we go on and on and on. Teachers do that, therapists do that, parents do that. And so we have to really, really kind of stop and think about uh, this relationship uh, here too between behavior and, you know, how, how big of an, how big is that child's, uh, his background, his experience? What, what, what factors have contributed to this behavior rather than, you know, this is something I'm going to correct today. So let me give you these other two things that we're talking about, more abuse and neglect and children with disabilities. Let's look at abuse. Children with the uh, disabilities that affect conduct, how they act, autism, <laughs> ADHD, any kind of sensory thing which makes a child act out are more at risk for abuse. And why would that be? I mean, that's just pretty uh, a pretty common sense kind of relationship here. They're doing things that adults want to stop, and when adults don't have... Uh, when their when their mental health is is challenged or whatever you want to call it evil whatever whatever term you call it there they're more likely to be abused who are the kids who are at more risk for neglect these are the kids who are deaf so can't hear and the kids who can't hear and the kids who can't talk so the nonverbal kids and certainly uh, because they can't tell anybody i haven't eaten anything in 3 days or um, my mom and dad uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is, they can't tell on 
uh, some someone who's hurting them and so or 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 we're really talking about neglect here that their needs aren't being met the physically impaired kids are at more risk for neglect too so the kids who might even need more our kids who are in wheelchairs our kids who need a special positioning our kids who have muscle tone differences they're more at risk for neglect and I think this is so important for us as SLPs to recognize so when we have a kid on our diagnosis our our caseloads with a diagnosis that again a disability that affects how he acts more likely to be abused and then the kids who can't communicate either input or output uh, more likely to be neglected all right so I mentioned this before, but I also want to talk about this now. A parent's ACE score has a significant impact uh, with their own child and with how their own child's developmental outcome or trajectory. So maternal ACEs, so when there's a mom who's had, uh, let's see here, the more ACEs a mother has experienced, a child is 18% more likely to have a suspected developmental delay for every ACE a mom has experienced. And so even by age one, about 12% of infant developmental delays in, you know, by 12 months. So this would be a kid who, again, is so significant that a pediatrician determines that under one, and that doesn't usually happen with language, right? We usually get referrals later at about two, sometimes by 18 months if it's pretty significant, but usually our language referrals are later. And so even by age one, when a ma uh, maternal ACEs, so how many adverse childhood experiences a mother had been through, uh, accounted for about 12% of all infants who were uh, developmentally delayed at age one. So not the birth defects or the birth, the physical things that happened to them, or maybe things that happened to them in utero. 12% of kids who are uh, delayed at one have uh, mothers who have high ACEs scores. Now it's even more for dads. Children have a 34% higher risk of delays for each ACE that a father experienced. So taking those family histories, sometimes we uh, don't place as much importance on that as we should. We think that's the social worker's job or that's the the, doc, the physician's job, but we as therapists and as educators of sweet little ones in our early intervention programs and our preschool programs need to really take that into consideration too when we have families. Again, we talked about that generational impact. So what are we going to do with all this? <laughs> all this information that we've talked about. How can we mitigate the impact of ACEs? Let me just give you one sentence here. And then we're going to talk about it the rest of uh, the show today. Building resilience is what counteracts the negative long-term effects of ACEs. So we have to help kids get that resilience, get that it doesn't, you know, that doesn't matter because this negative is not going to affect me because this positive uh, factor is going to come in and, and make up for all those terrible things that have happened. So this should be our main focus for kids and families who've lived through that trauma. We have to help them discover what protective mechanisms they have 
so they can already know, okay, this is good. This is a positive. This is something that I can build on here. And we also have to help them, again, develop new protective mechanisms so they don't just move on from you, so that they thrive. And so that we get kids, no matter what architectural changes that we know could potentially happen there in those little brains because of the things that have happened to those children, what can we do to counteract those negative effects? And one other thing that I that I hope I said earlier in the show, but I'm going to repeat it here, these ACEs scores are just a guideline. No kid, no adult is just magically resilient or invulnerable to ACEs, but no child is doomed either. And that's a quote from the Minnesota Department of Health. I wanted, because I, I thought that was just worded so beautifully. Uh, no, no kid is doomed just because we've talked about all these things. Just like perhaps you as an adult, maybe you, as you took that test and you had a high ACEs score, maybe you started feeling like, wow, I've really overcome some things here. I've gotten through some things that the researchers say all these other things should be happening in my life, and they're not. Things are going pretty well for me now. And so those are the kinds of things that we need to talk about with families and that we, maybe if we're not even saying them outright, that we are uh, helping them discover on their own the positive, the strengths. And we try to do that as early intervention providers anyway. We not only look at a, a child's weaknesses, we try to find strengths same things with families and especially our families again who have experienced these adverse childhood experiences not only ongoing but uh, certainly for parents in their past and so what are some things that we can do to like even think about resilience and again this is from Carol Westby's presentation and this is what uh, developmental psychologists encourage us to think about children to use the analogy as flowers. <laughs> all of our systems are different and all of us kind of come into this world and are naturally kind of preset with how we might respond to stress. And so some of us are like, let me get these examples, like dandelions. So we can thrive in all kinds of environments. Doesn't matter what's happened to us. Doesn't matter even that those terrible situations have occurred. We are psyched psychologically resilient. Uh, we are going to thrive and survive and again no matter what kinds of things have happened and you, uh, again you might be as an adult you might think back to your childhood you might even be thinking I haven't even thought about those things in a long time I'm so focused on what's happening now you're a dandelion. <laughs> That's how you got through that. Your system, again, was maybe a little more primed or a little more set to handle those things better. Some kids are like orchids. They're the other end of that spectrum. They need environments that are very supportive, very protective. They have to have things really, really controlled before they can thrive. And then we'll find the flower that's in between, like the tulip. These are flowers that are hardy sometimes, but fragile sometimes. And we'll have kids like that and parents that are like that too. Uh, they can survive in a variety of situations but they will need some support and again those differences are rooted in our genetics and if we don't have them in our genetics we can certainly do some things again to produce more uh, protective factors for ourselves and for our kids and these are really concrete things we can do. I don't want you to think about these as just kind of theoretical or academic these are these are real outcomes that we can achieve now now if this feels like an overreach for you as an SLP and you think well I'm not a I'm not a psychologist I'm not a social worker I'm not a whatever 
Keep watching and keep listening because I have some really good news. It's not as hard as we think. So let's take a quiz now, similar to the one that we took at the beginning of the course today, the beginning of the podcast, where we looked at our ACEs score. Now we're going to think about those protective factors. And again, these are the kinds of things that we want to help families and children build into their lives. So think through these questions. Now, this isn't really a scored test. These are just things that I want you to think about, just a little quiz. So are you or were you as a child able to talk to your family about your feelings? If yes, that's a protective factor. Did you feel like your family stood by you during difficult times? Did they? Do you, do you have some concrete experiences of how an adult showed up for you and took up for you and stood with you through a challenging time? Did you enjoy participating in community traditions? So were there things that you liked? Did you have a reason to kind of keep going? Those kinds of things. Did you feel a sense of belonging with your friends even as you got older, maybe in high school? Did you feel supported by friends? Did you have at least two non-parent adults, so a teacher, another kind of family member, anybody beyond your parents who took a genuine interest in you? And the last one is, did you feel safe and protected by any adults in your home? Those are really positive childhood factors. Let me give you some other protective factors. And again, those questions were kind of the touchy-feely version of that. Let's, let's walk through the more academic uh, version of it. So did you have close relationships with competent caregivers or other caring adults? And remember what the research said, we need two people outside of your parents for that really to be a protective factor. So for us as SLPs or therapists, when I read this, I, I, I wonder if it's the same thing you thought. Did you think, I want to be that person. I want to be that other person. I want to be that other non-parent caring adult in this kid's life. And I may not know this kid forever. He may not be on my caseload past whatever whatever happens for you when kids get discharged they turn three they age out of preschool that their insurance doesn't cover what mom and dad take them out of therapy whatever it doesn't matter as your little blip in time we want to be that other person we want to be that that competent caring person that they have a relationship with parent resilience is also a protective factor and you may have met parents that just tell you the most horrible stories about things that happened to them when they were children or even previously in their lives but they're okay they've come through it and again they may even be thriving and so you want to think about that as a as a protective factor for kids even if you have one parent who's doing that for you and as SLPs and other therapists who work in early intervention in our pediatric therapy programs we are so connected to the moms we serve so many times because we build relationships with them we 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 care about them we see them week after week after week after week and so again helping a parent build that resilience is so so important caregiver knowledge and application of positive parenting skills and that should certainly be something that we as therapists are doing all the time really modeling really educating parents and saying you know a better way to handle that or if you don't want to be judgmental another way to handle this when your child does this or uh, just just I, I, I can see that you're frustrated I know this is driving you crazy here's some things that I would try helping parents develop those competencies and to do learn new skills so that they can respond to their sometimes very demanding children and some of that behavior that we talked about before again that scares parents and so sometimes 
they can respond inappropriately just because of the fear that it places in them. You know, I have a kid who's gotten kicked out of preschool. You know, this is the, I, I'm going to have to find him another daycare because I can't handle what he does to other kids when he doesn't understand what's going on. We have to help parents and we have to help, again, the, uh, the staffs of the schools that we're working in and the daycares and preschools that we're serving. We have to really uh, help them understand what's going on with the child and then apply new skills, new strategies, new techniques. Another thing would be identifying and cultivating pardon me, a sense of purpose. So that's going to be faith for a child, faith in something beyond here in this world. Knowing their culture, their specific cultural um, wonderful traditions that they understand who they are and the families they've been born into and the communities they've been born into and their own identities. Uh, And then individual developmental competencies such as teaching those specific skills. That's a protective factor too. Social connections are a big deal even for children. So helping children make friends (laughs) and feel like they belong even in their preschool classrooms and certainly uh, helping families find additional avenues of support so that they can meet those physical and those realities of feeding their children and clothing their children and uh, getting their children uh, care. So uh, we already talked about that first protective factor and that's with you. (laughs) That's that warm, personal, loving relationship that I hope that you're thinking about with every single child on your caseload. Certainly with parents, that's also the number one goal through infancy and childhood is helping a child form that positive, strong, emotional bond with you. Uh, and that's, that's certainly something that we as therapists, we don't always consider that a written goal for the families that we serve, but certainly nurturing that kind of attachment with a parent is something that we need to do. Um, I think as an SLP, one of the best ways that we can do this is really teaching language and teaching parents how to teach their children language. And why would I make this jump here? That's because, again, how we we talked about mitigating. I kind of want to think about mediating. How do we talk about what's happened with you? How do we problem solve so that these situations, so that when you're acting out or when you're pulling hair and you shouldn't be, when you're all those things, language helps us deal with all these, not only the things that are happening at the beginning so that a child can understand what's happened, or secondly, how we deal with those behavioral implications, those strategies. You know, we're going we're gonna to talk about talking. We're going to talk about how we're acting. We're going to talk about how we're thinking. We're going to talk about how we're feeling. Kids don't get to that level of emotional maturity and able to use the words to effectively deal with the things that have happened to them until they have these basic foundational skills. So that's what we're doing. We're just starting with this first level of building blocks here. So what are the things that we can do for our language delayed two and three and four and five-year-olds that make a difference when they're older, when they're school-aged, when they're when they're adolescents, and even when they're adults? So what are the things that we can do? Secure attachments, and again, predictable routines. And so I pull that information back from the mental health literature and think, okay, what can I do to make secure attachments and what can I do to help children have predictable routines? Some of the same things that we talk about every podcast here, (laughs) social games and verbal routines. Social games are when we play uh, those, those 
familiar, traditional, or even original little routines that we have with kids that are really, really predictable. They know when you're playing Ring Around the Rosies, what? That you're going to hold hands, you're going to walk around in a circle, you're going to fall down, everybody's going to laugh, you're going to get up and do it again. Why is that important to a kid? Because it makes him feel like he's belong he belongs, he feels attached and connected to the adults that are playing that with him. It's a ton of fun and he can predict that routine. Even something that simplistic can help a baby or a toddler or a preschooler over time start to feel more safe and start to feel, again, that, that warm connection with you. And so even these little things that we're doing, turns out when we implement routines in the midst of a child's chaotic life, we're providing that framework and that structure and we teach a child what to expect from himself and what he can expect from us. And so that really goes a long way to establishing that uh, security that we want kids to feel and to experience. Uh, the mental health literature is full of evidence to support that positive impact of these little daily routines for adults and children. And that's why so many times in early intervention, that's what we're focused on with families, their everyday routines. And how can we tweak that so that a child can learn more language? And we're certainly gonna do that, but as we're doing it, we need to think about how repetitiveness and predictability, when it's positive, how, again, that really, really helps a child who is just in that, just that beginning phase of establishing that emotional maturity and of that uh, that that uh, just that developmental level where uh, he is so when we have those predictable uh, routines even these play routines even that a parent you know we teach a parent to do these kinds of little social games how does that impact him because mom is going to play with him mom is going to connect with him mom is going to feel closer to him he's going to learn more language he's going to learn how to talk back to mom how to how to communicate with her and so when we do that it helps us cope with change it helps us create those healthy habits improve our behavior and we're going to reduce stress so that's what we've been talking about the whole time so teaching parents things like how to read to a child, how to keep that busy, busy child from running away, how, what's going to make it easier for that child to learn how to use these toys. Those are not only affect his language development, but also a child's emotional and psychological development. So if you haven't thought about that that's something that you're providing to the families that you're serving, I hope that I've changed your mind about that and helped you start to think about how important these verbal routines are, how important these little social games and social connections. Even if a child can get like a 10 minute, just that one-on-one -on -one time with somebody who cares about him every day, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, 10 minutes at night, that's going to go a long, long way to, uh, toward being a protective factor when he's undergoing uh, stress in the rest of his life. So don't dismiss these early goals. Don't dismiss these strategies that you are uh, teaching parents every day. If you're not really thinking about that, thinking about how can I provide some stability? How can I provide something that this child is going to be able to recognize and count on day in and day out? That's something that we certainly can do today. Now, if you're a therapist or a parent, you need some resources to help you learn these little social games and these verbal routines. I have two great ones that I want to tell you about. The first, the first one is Teach Me to Play With You, and it's a therapy manual that is just full of those little games that I mentioned 
like uh, Ring Around the Rosies, like playing the night-night game, like playing Rocket Ship and Chase and all those games that toddlers love to play. Sometimes parents really don't know how to play those, and they certainly don't know how to break those games down into goals with step-by-step achievable outcomes so that we can really, really measure progress, not only in language development, meaning this kid's going to say more, he's going to understand more and communicate better, but also in the realm of his social and emotional connection to his parents or any other caregiver who's going to take the time uh, to do these little games with him. So wonderful resource. And actually, this is the number one resource that I see mentioned on parenting boards. all uh, any any time that I kind of check on that, and certainly for our little guys with autism or who are at risk for autism, or our little guys who again have those um, just interrupted social connections with their parents. This is a wonderful way to get that back. With foster parents, I've taught so many parents how to use these little games and it makes such a positive impact. And again, this is something we can do. This is a, this is an achievable step that we can do to helping our little friends, uh, again, recover and move on from some of those stressful things that they've experienced. And the second one is building verbal imitation skills in toddlers. And this is just the best, easiest system that I've ever found or used for helping a child who's nonverbal move to a child who uses single words first by imitating and then by imitating phrases and then uh, move on to use those phrases on his own. So building verbal imitation skills in toddlers. There's a great chart at the back that just really walks you through teaching a child how to move through these eight levels of imitation so that uh, he learns again uh, it goes from not saying anything to being able to imitate almost anything you say to him and then use those words spontaneously so those are wonderful tools if you're a parent or a therapist I hope that you'll check those out uh, in the link below all right that's it for today I hope that you've learned some new things about uh, childhood trauma and stress certainly Knowing your own ACEs score, if you had not had uh, that information before, maybe that'll help you understand yourself a little bit more. And certainly, even for the parents of the children that we're serving, that might be something that you might think about walking through some of parents who have had particularly challenging histories there to help them understand so many of the things that are happening. All right, this is really it this time. (laughs) I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. Thank you so much for joining me for this uh, episode of Teach Me to Talks podcast. Have a wonderful week.